The Guardian. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, I'm joined by one of the funniest and most influential writers and producers on television, Armando Iannucci. His latest series, The Thick of It, has just begun on BBC Two, and he's about to start on the second season of Veep in the US. He's also working on the film version of Alan Partridge with Steve Coogan, with whom he worked on I'm Alan Partridge, The Day to Day, the list goes on. Iannucci delivered the annual BAFTA lecture in London this week, a rallying cry for UK television to fight back against the forces of oppression and take on the world. But how should it do that? What's been the reaction? And how's the Partridge movie going? All that to come. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, I'm joined for this special edition of Media Talk by Armando Iannucci. Armando, you've got a, a list of credits longer than this podcast. Why so. is it special? Well, it's special because you're here. Oh, right. Okay. I mean, they're always special, but this is this Is, is it just special. us? It, it is just us, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, right. I've suddenly got scared now. <laughs> I thought I'd be in and out in two minutes. Well, we're here to uh, we're here to mark the occasion of your BAFTA lecture, of course. Oh, thank you. Uh, very privileged uh, to uh, to deliver it. How, how did you feel? Because recently you've sort of let your TV shows do the talking for you. So, um, how did you feel when you were invited? Um, yeah, it's nice to be asked to do the. And I have done the odd. You know, I, I gave the alternative McTaggart, and and I gave um, some talks uh, on comedy uh, in Oxford about four or five years ago, and it's it's interesting. I find them useful because you get so involved in the day-to-day practicalities of making television and it can be an all-absorbing experience when you're putting a, a show together that the little thoughts about the bigger picture just get stored at the back of your mind and it's useful to be given the opportunity to take some time out to just go and think about it and just to think, you know, what is the thing that riles you most or what's the thing that you're most passionate about? How can you define what it is that gets you motivated, what you're most scared of happening? And then I found, you know, the actual writing of it came very easily because once once you lock into the thing it is that you want to say, I think then it's all about trying to keep it as spontaneous as possible. And the suggestion of your lecture, which was fight, 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 suggests suggest you're feeling fairly riled right now. But also um, uh, upbeat. It, you know, the tone of the lecture was really, I think this is a very good time in British television. I was arguing that British television always regarded itself as, as the best in the world. And we may have stopped thinking that recently simply because American TV is making such great drama and comedy at the moment. And actually, I think... What hasn't happened is that the quality, you know, our ability hasn't diminished. I just feel that we're not using that ability uh, to to full effect. I think the British TV, the creative aspect, the creative industry within Television Britain is the best in the world. I'm not sure the way we commission programmes at the moment is turning that tap on full. 
We had some praise for, for various uh, British TV producers and presenters, people like um, um, Charlie Brooker and Graham Linehan, and, uh, and you pointed out a few of your, your favourite TV shows, like Breaking Bad in the, in the US. But yeah. what's, on your, what's on your EPG? What's on your PVR at the moment? What are the kind of TV shows that are getting your, your attention right now? Well, my daily show is stacking up. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm about five years behind on the Daily Show. It's no longer quite as topical as he uh, intended. I'm waiting until the box set comes out, and then we'll do it one weekend. Um, so there's that. There's, uh, and I watch it. I, you know, I watch television in a, in in the way that I think a lot of people uh, do, which is you know, whole series are stacking up. I've still got all of Homeland to watch. I was absolutely rooted to the um, nightly. Paralympics on Channel 4, which I, I just thought was uh, amazing. In fact, the whole Olympic coverage, the BBC uh, and the Channel 4 coverage has, has really what I've been completely absorbed in the last three or four weeks. And, I'm, and because I'm in the middle also of um, coming to the end of editing the thick of it and starting scripts on Veep at the moment, I tend to come home and, and, and watch something completely different from that world. So I don't sit and watch lots of comedies at the moment, actually. I'm, I'm watching documentaries and bits of BBC4. And so. Is it partly for fear that you get influenced by other people's gags or subliminally you sort of take them in? And, and no, they... I just come home thinking I've been doing this all day. The last thing I want is someone trying to make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, hence the stacked up uh, Daily shows. Well, you like the Daily Show. What about the Colbert Report? Is that a, are you a fan of that? Well, but we don't get it here, though, do we? Uh, it used to be on FX and it never really worked. And, and I think part of the problem for me with the Colbert Report is that we don't have that thing of a right wing ideologue presenting a show. So we don't we have nothing to compare it to. We, we don't know what it is. It's a parody of. So I think that's probably why Colbert hasn't quite um, taken off here. Now, you talk of someone who therefore accesses the Colbert Report some other way. Well, certainly my producer does. Uh, oh, yes. right. okay. Legally? <laughs> Legally? Oh. Yeah, okay, yeah, so I'll, I'll wait, wait till the mics are turned off. Uh, uh, well, yeah. we should get back to your lecture. Uh, oh. As you suggested, it was, well, it was a, a lecture of two halves, if you'll forgive me. On the one hand, it was quite optimistic. Uh, yeah. But at the start, it was quite, it was quite sobering. Uh, you sort of painted a, a picture of the, the UK TV industry, which was um, sort of paralysed by fear of failure with, with power in the hands of too few commissioning executives, yes. relying too much on, on market research and, and but frankly, riding roughshod over creatives like yourself. Or not necessarily riding roughshod, but being very cautious with... Uh, I find that the best programmes, the most distinctive programmes, are the products of individual, idiosyncratic, imaginative people. So the names that you mentioned there, but you know the, the, the drama that's on Channel 4 at the moment, or the Shane Meadows season, or the Charlie Brooker season... Sherlock on on BBC One, you know, you know these are big, ambitious, thought provoking, chewy bits of television, and I think they can only be like that because they're not made by committee, and they're not made according to the diktat of a commissioner. I was arguing that a, a problem in recent years has been that the commissioners have, just by the nature of their job, because the the pressure is on them to get it right almost by necessity, they become more and more involved in the nuts and bolts of a programme. And, and they have this power to say who should be in it, who should be writing it, extensive notes on the script, extensive notes on the casting, extensive notes on the cuts. And I think that means that what's happening is you're, you're diminishing the, the power of the, of the creative team behind it. Comedy and drama is expensive. 
And we have gone through a period where we've discovered that reality is cheap and can get viewers. And therefore, you know, why risk lots of money on certain TV, comedy and drama projects? And therefore, when you're making a drama and when you're making a comedy, there's, there's an air of, you know, you're lucky to be doing this. And in that case, beggars can't be choosers. You know, if we're commissioning this, uh, by God, we're going to tell you how to make it and, and, and whether we're happy with it. And I think no matter how good the commissioner is, there comes a point where if you have that amount of power, you are going to end up losing object- objectivity and you're going to commission according to your own personal tastes. I think it's inevitable. Uh, and there was a period, a very unhealthy period, I, I felt, when the BBC was the only place in town to make comedy. Channel 4 weren't doing that much. Nothing was happening on ITV or Sky or Channel 5. And therefore, our entire television comedy industry was in the hands of two or three people. And I think no matter how good they are, that's an unhealthy position to be in. Now, that's changing. The last couple of years, that's changed. And I think what's happened is broadcasters have woken up to the fact that actually there's only so much of an audience you can get by just churning stuff out. You can only hold on to that audience. You can only steal that audience from other people if you start making programs that get talked about and distinctive programs, programs that flatter the audience by having a degree of high concept or great writing or fantastic performance in them. And as a result, Channel 4 making more comedy, ITV's talking about comedy for the first time, actually has a comedy commissioner for the first time in Donkey's years. And Sky are pouring loads of money into British comedy and drama production. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that will mean that, um, for example, commissioners at the BBC, who are used to being the final say on the whole industry, now realise that actually they've got competitors and they actually have to be sharper and quicker off the of their mark, really, in, in encouraging projects. And you mentioned Sky there, who are ploughing millions. I think they're going to, well, they've said they're going to double the investment in homegrown yeah. comedy and drama to, to 600 million by 2015. And of course, you took, with Steve Coogan, you took the latest Alan Partridge series to, to Sky. And uh, you used that as an example in the Q&A after your lecture about the sort of differing opinions between uh, Sky on the one hand, I think you mentioned HBO as well, yeah. uh, and the BBC on the other. And it seems like yeah. the BBC is still very much um, of a different mindset to how they treat talent and programmes. Just tell us again about the, sort of the, the, the different attitudes they took to Mid-Morning Matters, which was the online part yeah, of the series. I mean, that... the, the history of Mid-Morning Matters was we were approached by Fosters, who were doing a sort of big comedy launch to, to, to make some Alan Partridge stuff. And, and we, we agreed to do it if we were left alone. And we shot it rather, rather like we are now in a little radio studio and with little mini cameras, fixed cameras, and it was Alan doing his his show Mid Morning Matters on North Norfolk Digital, and they were an opportunity for us to resurrect the character, to get him back up to speed, but to give ourselves the discipline of these sort of constraints of Alan doing a, a, a an on air piece that couldn't be interrupted. And you know we worked hard at them. We wanted them to be good, and we were really pleased by the kind of reception that they got. Now, as a result, various channels approached us about putting them out on uh, terrestrial well or, or or on or on television and we spoke to the bbc but i have to say the the conversation with the bbc wasn't as interesting as we hoped it would be there was an air of 
well, it's been out on the internet, so it doesn't feel fresh. So we'll stick it on after Newsnight. And if there's going to be a second series, can we open it up away from the radio station? Which creatively I felt was the whole point of the programme in the first place. The conversations we had with Sky were, we will put them out as they are. We don't want to interfere. If you do another series, we want it exactly as it's done in the first place. We don't want to get in the way. Here's how we can promote it. Here's how we can give it a profile. How about if Alan did his own tour of Norfolk as a one-off special to, to set the thing off and just give it a... And it just felt much more creatively interesting. I mean, people will say people have been lured to Sky because of the money. I have no idea what the money was. The money didn't enter into it. I think it's more or less what we would have got paid if, if it went to BBC. It was just much more creatively interesting and of that mindset that would fit the show. Now, of course, the people we were speaking to at Sky used to work at the BBC anyway. Stuart Murphy used to run, you know, BBC Three, and Lucy Lumsden was the head of comedy at the BBC commissioning. And it made me think that I think the conversations we had with the BBC it were probably the, you know, the dying embers of a BBC that was used to being the only game in town, and therefore, if it wasn't going in the BBC, it wasn't going anywhere. I hope that... And I know that they've already spoken about this, saying that, you know, the scripts just aren't automatically coming to them anymore. The performers aren't and they aren't necessarily taking their projects to the BBC uh, as quickly and as, as first port of call as they used to. I think the BBC are now waking up to that and they have a new comedy commissioner there. And, and, and therefore, I think that this would be a good time for them to to realise that actually they've got to be much more competitive in, in how they go out there and grab the talent. And you've touched on there about the issue of money and people have, people have discussed uh, you know, how much that is a factor in, in, in drawing people to Sky. But another issue is, is, is ratings. Uh, yes. uh, uh, our report of your, your lecture today, people pointed out that um, even if it had gone out after Newsnight on BBC Two and hadn't got much marketing, it still might have got more viewers than, than it got on, on, on Sky One. How much does to, to the potential audience, how, is, how much is that a, a factor in your thinking when you decide which broadcast? It always is. I mean, the, 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 in the end, the, you know, the bottom line is will it go out the way we want it to, i.e. will we be allowed to make the programme that we want to make? You know, that's got to be the main factor. After that, obviously, you want as many people as possible to see it. My hope is that with something like Mid-Morning Matters, I think the audience watches it differently. It doesn't go out in one night. Yes, it, it goes out on a Monday night, but it's then repeated three or four times that week. It's then brought back for another run of repeats eight weeks later. So it's much more difficult to measure. I've found that, you know, cumulatively the audience for Mid-Morning Matters is round about, probably just under, what we would have expected if it had gone out on BBC Two on, in the 11.15 slot after news night. Is that what the best part of a, a million viewers, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's how you do it. Now, of course, <laughs> if it goes out in BBC Two, you've then got iPlayer. So there's a whole other way of measuring the BBC Two audience as well, which, you know, just confuses the matter. I mean, I'm finding that, you know, the whole thing about ratings is is just this very confused science now. Uh, I don't think anyone knows what the final figures are. I mean, program. we talked earlier about how I watch television. I, you know, I've yet to watch Homeland. They're all stacked up. So this is what, we're now talking six months on from transmission. How have you I, possibly avoided all the spoilers? Uh, oh, I just, I, I've got it to a fine art. I tell me, you know, I'm halfway through the second series of Game of Thrones and I managed to avoid. Uh, um, I find it's difficult. But, but also, you know, whether something is, goes out 
on television or is online or is then available for download or is out on DVD. The whole thing becomes this kind of long, was it the long tail thing? I find it difficult to know. All, all, all I can do is 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 work towards making a show where I think I'm being allowed to make it the way I want it to, and then try and broadcast it in as many ways as possible. Okay, well, let's move on from uh, the part of your lecture that dealt with creativity onto, onto politicians yes. and the press. Now, I probably won't deliver this in the style you did uh, last night, so you'll, <laughs> you'll forgive me, but uh, this was you on politicians. You said there were specially bred adminodroids uh, legislating into an empty chamber and who experienced everything through the matrix of their own political blueprint for Britain. Actually, or, leg- legislating. Oh, is that, is that right? Okay. Legi- <laughs> <laughs> it's important to get that right. Yes, into an empty chamber. Uh, um, and put simply, they don't watch much telly. No, they don't. That's the thing. They watch, probably watch news night. They probably watch the thick of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Record ratings, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> And they probably get a little brief on other things, you know, they, in the same way that every morning they get a series of press cuttings about themselves, and that is their view on the world. I'm talking about, you know, politicians who are in power rather than, you know, your backbench MP. And worse, their advisors are these 30-somethings who live, eat and breathe and crap politics, and who again... If they watch something, watch it out of research rather than out of enthusiasm. So they who probably do watch X Factor and, and that because they feel they have to because it's part of the zeitgeist. Um, Just checking the sleaze factor. The sle- yeah, and, and therefore their approach to television is different from the average viewer, which is why, you know, when politicians weigh in about, you know, the BBC or Channel 4, I think they come in from a perspective where it's not really about what is it that people love about the BBC. It's more about what they think their party membership or their constituents who voted for them might think about the BBC, which is a very different thing. I mean, they talk more about business models. I mean, I picked up in the Q&A session afterwards the fact that when the great round of spending cuts emerged, you know, what they did to the BBC was a very much a last minute, therefore you have no time to turn around and go away and think about this, yes or no, we're going to cut your funding by 20%. That was very much a political move, as evidenced by the fact that two or three days later when David Cameron was, was taking questions about this, he was talking about how we were all in this together and how every organisation, public organisation, was going to have to make sacrifices, including, quote, rather deliciously, unquote, the BBC. Why did he say rather deliciously? It's like there was some animosity, some personal political agenda there. And if you look at um, Jeremy Hunt's uh, support for the B Sky B uh, bid, sorry, the News Corp bid for B Sky B, his letter, before he became Culture Secretary, his letter of recommendation to David Cameron, it's all about it as a business model, as a multimedia model, it's all about that rather than what it will mean for the average British viewer, what it will mean to the television industry for the programme makers and the producers and the writers. There was no reference. It's a very dry, arid analysis of how the media works. And I just find that, you know, an interesting and slightly worrying aspect of how politicians regard television and the media. And uh, it seems the governments of the day have always interfered in uh, with, yes. with the BBC. But do you think it's worse now than it was, say, in the 80s? Well, I think the problem is, which, again, I address, is the BBC has got into this default of 
apologizing for any criticism it receives. Uh, I mean, the words I said was, you know, whenever it's accused of a crime, even one it hasn't committed, it, it goes along and hands itself into the nearest police station. <laughs> so, you know, if someone, say, like James Murdoch says, the BBC has too many networks and too many stations, the first thing the BBC does is say, right, we're going to shut down Six Music until enough people say, don't do that. And it gets bad headlines for shutting down Six Music. So it says, OK, we're going to keep it open. You know, and I, I find the BBC forgets that actually its support, the same level of support that I think the British public have for the NHS, which is why we rather enjoyed the celebration of the NHS in the Olympic opening ceremony. That level of support is there for the BBC and for the for for the concept of public service broadcasting that we have in uh, sort of terrestrial television generally. The BBC forgets that there is that well of support. And you said the BBC should also do more to kind of um, uh, sh- shout from the rooftops uh, overseas, do more in America. Yeah, and make money overseas. Uh, I mean, they have this operation BBC Worldwide, but I think there is always high up in the BBC, there is always n- this nervousness of the idea of them making money as if somehow that's contrary to the principles of the BBC. And I was arguing that the BBC abroad in markets like America and Asia have a brand recognition as great as Google and Apple and Coca-Cola and Disney. So why don't they make money out of it? Why don't they set up subscription channels abroad in the way that HBO do, which will show BBC shows? I think they would make a fortune of that. And that money could then be plugged back into UK production, which would allow us to make even more ambitious shows, which would then give the subscription services abroad even better ingredients to to, to, to show off. Uh, and it would become that uh, productive cycle and profitable cycle that I think would be very healthy for BBC. And is the reason you don't, they don't do that, do you think, is it connected with the licence fee and the fear that increased commercial activity would undermine the case of the licence fee? I think at some point soon they're going to have to recognise that the licence fee, as, as a model, as a concept, is just not going to work anymore. If we, if we look at how we watch television... You know, the fact that we can down, you know, get the iPlayer and download shows and watch them anywhere. We can go online. We can go abroad and use whatever illegal website to access live BBC shows. The licence fee as it stands now is going to be unworkable within 10 years, maybe even sooner. So it's it would be worth it, I feel, if they put more energy into coming up with a model that can replace it. That's enough of the big broadcasting issues. Let, let, let's talk about the thick of it. Good, that's all fixed. <laughs> I'm glad that's sorted. We put that to rest. Yeah. How did the Leveson Inquiry feed into the new series of, of the thick of it? Are we going to see? We're going to see developments, aren't we? In the in the in the third episode. There's uh, there's certainly elements of inquiry that will uh, run uh, through the series. I don't want to say anything else just yet. The way the series works is we started off with the coalition in episode one. We'll go to opposition in episode two. We'll go back to coalition for episode three, but something happens in that episode that will then uh, generate a story that will take us right to the bitter, bitter end of the series. This is like a Doctor Who narrative arc. It is a narrative arc that that, that I kind of, uh, you know, brought back Walter Raleigh-like from America, having done Veep, because HBO, they make sh- short series. They make series of seven, eight, nine, ten. They don't do the big 22-part shows. And therefore, they, up against the big networks, they have to feed into their shows. Something that just 
keeps people wanting to come back the following week. Just a little thing that just pushes you into next week's episode. And that was a great discipline to try out for the first time on Veep. And I had been feeling anyway with Think of It. We've we've had so many permutations of the thicket we, we did one series of three and then another series of three and then we did two big one-hour specials we brought in what was the opposition then with peter mannion for the last series we had nicola murray the new minister and we we had a, a long run we had eight episodes but we also had a little narrative arc building towards the end of malcolm and steve fleming and we had a two-parter at the end and and i and i just thought for this new series We've been away for three years. There is a new government. There is a coalition. There's a whole new dynamic here. We have to reflect that. But that in itself will give us a new shape for the show. And so that's what we went with. We So we started the first with the first episode without any Malcolm, controversially. That's right. Disappointed some. a few reviewers. Yeah, yeah, but, few, yeah, but they're all excited about episode They were all, two. you know, we did say that it wouldn't be Malcolm. <laughs> Um, and, but he's back from series two, uh, from episode two. He's 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 there, and I think it's given it, a, you know, a, a, a new energy and a sort of it's sort of disrupted it a bit, which is good. I think that's you know, from the perspective of someone who's making it, it's it's interesting. It's more interesting doing it like that. And and I also feel, I mean, we got the biggest viewing figures we've ever had for an episode of of, of the thick of it when we're out on Saturday night against. The Paralympics, <laughs> the last night of the proms and um, X Factor. I think there's a lot of people coming to this show not having seen it before, who've heard about it, but actually, you know, don't know the ins and outs of Malcolm Tucker. They're in for a shot. Uh, so I think they were getting a whole new cast, but actually we're coming to, we were getting a whole new viewer, viewership. And, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact we have our old friends who watch the show and we have a kind of whole new set of viewers and we have to take both of them through the series so that's how we've kind of constructed it and just like to finish on the partridge movie of course which everyone's very excited about Uh, what what can you tell us it it will happen and it will happen next year early next year and we're still in in the deep stages of of writing the script but we're at the stage where we're kind of workshopping it a bit so that's the kind of exciting bit where it starts to kind of come alive and you can see how the scenes are going to work and it's nice being seen we've already done little for the first time and I think about Felicity was saying this when Felicity Montague who plays Lynn when we were workshopping Lynn and Alan a couple of weeks back Felicity was saying it has been about 11 years (laughs) since we last had them together in my head you know I've imagined you know where Steve and I are always you know, imagining what Alan and Lynn are up to. So in our heads, you know, it's, 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 they haven't gone away. But actually, physically, we hadn't seen Lynn and Alan in a room together for 11 years. So that, yeah. was, that was really exciting. And, and the relationship is still is as difficult as it always was. Great. Well, uh, Armando, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. And uh, good luck with the uh, rest of the series of The Thick of It. And we look forward to the uh, Partridge movie and the second series of Veep, of course. Thank you very much. So, my thanks to Armando Iannucci. We should also point out that a filmed edit of his BAFTA lecture will be on the BAFTA Guru website, which you can find at bafta.org guru. And the great man will be taking part in a Twitter Q&A with at BAFTA this Friday, that's the 14th of September, at 12.45pm. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill, who assures me you can indeed watch The Colbert Report quite legally at comedycentral.co.uk. 
Thanks for listening and see you next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us.